The Redefining Parenthood podcast focuses on building your family using a donor, featuring stories where a difficult trying to conceive journey has unexpectedly led them towards this path. I'm your host, Becky, also known as Defining Mum, a proud mum to three amazing girls, all thanks to egg donation, following my own diagnosis of premature ovarian failure in my late 20s. I know from my own experience and speaking to many others that this isn't a simple path. It's not just a one-time decision and there's lots to think about, many emotions to deal with and actually with very little support available and quite often we just don't know anyone else who can truly relate to how we're feeling. That's where this podcast can help. Through personal stories I'll be sharing relatable conversations as we talk about the hope and the expectations, alongside feelings of shame, dealing with genetic loss, family resemblances, talking to others and importantly to our children about this lesser discussed family building story. Hello and welcome back to the Redefining Parenthood podcast and I know I've been out of action for quite a while now. I think time has just run away with me a little bit so earlier on in the year I held my very first in-person event which was amazing um, but took lots and lots of planning and time. Then there was the summer and I have also been very busy with my other hat on which is as co-founder of Fertility Matters at Work and we're doing lots of work to try and change the conversations in the workplace when it comes to fertility and we're also campaigning for the statutory right to time off for appointments relating to fertility treatment so please if you don't already come and follow us over at Fertility Matters at Work and there you will be able to find out how you can support our campaign in writing to your local MP. We want to try and create as much noise as possible so that when the second reading of the bill happens in Parliament this November we can hopefully start to see some changes in legislation that will make this journey easier. So yes a little bit off topic but I did want to mention that because it's such an important piece of work that we're focusing on and any support we can get from you is really really appreciated. So for today I'm going to be sharing a story this is a conversation I had a few months ago with Jen and Jen is someone who I met on Instagram and she's now a mum through egg donation and her story goes over many years and has lots of deep thoughts and over that time she has grieved and she has moved towards what is now her path to parenthood through known egg donation. And I think when you hear Jen's story, it really demonstrates the complexity of emotions that we go through on this journey and how these emotions can still coexist even when we're on the other side and we're, we're happy and delighted to have our long for child. So do listen. I'm sure many of you will be able to relate. Um, and if you're in the very early stages of your journey, I think some of Jen's reflections will be really, really helpful. Following on from this, um, Julianne is back. And in this episode, we're talking about that fear that many of us have around our parenting identity and how we will bond with our children. And, and that comes off the back of a comment that Jen will talk about in her story. And I think what what Julianne really talks about is how important relationships are and also how complex the process can be. So I hope you find this episode helpful. I'm sure you'll find it enlightening. And as always, please do rate, share and let me know what you think. 
Hi, so I'm delighted to have Jen with me today and um, Jen has become a friend of mine through Instagram so she's probably one of the very first people I remember connecting with when I started sharing my story on Defining Mum as she was going through her own journey to become a parent and yes over that time over those three years um, Jen has now become a mum through egg donation and she's going to share her story with us today and I was really keen to get Jen on because she's taken a slightly different path to most um, in that she has used a known egg donor to build her family and I thought it'd be a really really good conversation to have it's the first time she's sharing her story since she had her son Um, and yeah I'm just really excited to be able to share this with you so welcome Jen. Hello nice to be here <laughs> lovely to have you and um yeah I suppose let's just start at the beginning let's start start with your story of how you started trying to conceive and, and how you got to where you were today yeah so it's it's quite a long one so I'll try and keep it brief um I was trying to figure out because when it's been quite a long time you do lose track of dates um so I think it was probably about 11 years ago I had a cyst on one of my ovaries it was quite a, a large cyst um, and I had to have surgery for it. And when I went to the GP afterwards to try and change my contraception, she said, you know, you should really start thinking about the family you're getting on. And I was 26. And really? Yeah, I was ready. Um, we hadn't even considered thinking about a family. I was quite career orientated. Um, so it, it just created this little gremlin in my mind. Um and I do wonder if she had some information that had perhaps not been shared with me at the time as well from mm. some post-op notes, because I never had post-op follow-up. That's a different tale. Um, so I went home and, and my husband and I kind of had a chat and we thought part of the problem with the cyst in the first place may have been due to the contraception I was on. So we decided just, you know, the words we used, it wouldn't be the end of the world if we had a baby. <laughs> famous last words oh who who really would have thought that you would ever say those things and you jinx yourself um anyway so we didn't really cry but we weren't not trying and then I think it was possibly about a year later that I started to get a bit itchy thinking why is this not happening and so we did start trying and it just didn't happen so in the two or three years that we'd been trying by that point um I decided that I didn't want to do IVF it was not something I wanted to consider I didn't think that I would mentally be able to cope with it there is a lot of background about not dealing well with failure and being a bit of a perfectionist so we actually then looked into adoption uh, and we went abroad we went to Thailand uh based on a conversation we'd had with a couple on holiday once and we needed to get married so we quickly did <laughs> and uh, we you know we then looked into the process and then I again the perfectionist thing started to do a bit more research and and found out quite a lot about adoption trauma and that perhaps adopting abroad wouldn't be right for us you can see why people do um but decided maybe for us it wasn't the right thing and we did look a little bit more locally we never really investigated it in the UK that much and then I surprisingly fell pregnant um and un- unfortunately uh, we had a miscarriage um and that triggered sorry <laughs> no problem um, at all 
triggered that need to be a mum. Yeah, um, yeah. I was talking with um, Cetel recently who talked about how it was only sort of when she got pregnant herself and had a miscarriage that she really realised that intense desire yeah. and need to, to be a mum. So and it's funny, yeah. like, I, I, I have this internal debate of how much of it is this perfectionism can't fail <laughs> is it just that pregnancy yeah. was something that I failed at and I really felt this urge to complete it or or how much of it was this you know incredible biological urge to be a mom and and, and I think it was the latter but there was definitely an element of that why can't I do this why can't this happen for me when it happens so easily for other people and so it became quite intense um We'd obviously fallen pregnant, so we couldn't get an NHS referral for fertility treatment, even though it had taken three and a half years to fall pregnant, naturally. That seems crazy, um, Our Our GP was kind and and said that rather than the year that they expected us to wait, she would do the referral at six months, which she did. And the first port of call was IUI, so we had multiple IUI cycles, um, which didn't work. And then again, we fell pregnant, which then again ended in miscarriage, which actually, because there's a whole tale before this was was my third loss. Um, so at that point, the consultant that I was under decided IUI wasn't the right route anymore. And she referred us for IVF and we had some bloods taken for our appointment. And when we got to the appointment, they told me that my AMH was significantly lower. I don't really like sharing numbers because I think it creates that comparison. I find it quite triggering and don't want to trigger other people. Um, so yeah, my my AMH was incredibly low. Um, they said to expect a low yield of eggs. Um, but because of my age, I was just, I wasn't quite 31, I don't think. Because of my age, they expected that the quality of the eggs should be good and we should have success. Um, so from that, very briefly, we had three very poor cycles of IVF, uh, all of which failed. Um, and really at the first appointment, that appointment, that day, when I was 30, I looked into donor egg IVF. Um, I needed a plan, even though we knew we had a plan of three cycles of IVF. I think in my heart of hearts, I knew it wasn't going to work. Um, I had suspicions about my egg quality because of our miscarriages. Um, and I was also very, very fearful that there may have been a genetic condition underlying, which obviously in the UK, nobody tests for. There's never a great deal of investigation into anything, is there? Um, and yeah, so there we had three failed cycles of IVF. We went to numerous other clinics across the country after that. Um, to discuss the possibility of donor egg IVF. I had two clinics tell me, I think I was 33 at the time, that I was giving up. And I was one particular consultant told me I was letting my husband down by not pursuing own egg IVF at 33, despite three failed IVF cycles with no successful transfers. We didn't even have miscarriages um, yeah. with the IVF. I remember you saying that to me, actually, yeah. and that whole concept of giving up is yeah. such a difficult one when you're going yeah. through this because you're not giving up you're yeah. <laughs> taking a different path absolutely and yeah I think that's really unhelpful particularly from a medical professional mm -hmm. um 
to plant that seed because you're already wrestling with is this the right thing and yeah so he yeah he was adamant that this wasn't the right thing for us to do um he he very much said that he felt he was a better clinic than our previous clinic and that he could do it and with the <laughs> with this came he felt that we should do pgd um we never in all of our cycles had more than one embryo so spending the money on pregenetic diagnosis for one embryo seemed excessive and I honestly because I can have a logical brain I think I was able to pick apart that perhaps his intentions weren't giving me a genetic child but perhaps to exploit a little bit more money out of us before we went on to donor egg IVF you know we have to look their businesses aren't they at the end of the day and we always need to remember that I think when we go to clinics yeah I think that's important I think my husband was more the logical one when we were going through it and he got a little bit cynical towards certain points whereas I was very much emotion led and if there's a chance we must do it so I think to have that ability to think right okay think with your head a little bit rather than just your heart can really help can't it yeah and I think you know as I say three years before that I was looking into donor eggs even though I knew we still had three cycles of IVF we were going to do I very much from the start was quite open to it and I think potentially that's because we'd looked into adoption first um and potentially in our family genetics aren't a huge thing my closest emotional relative um is actually my grandpa who is my mum's stepdad you know genetics in our family we it's it's never irrelevant but you know in my experience which isn't the same for donor for for donor conceived people but in my experience you know having a genetic attachment hasn't been my closest relationship so I think perhaps in my head I I could cope with that a little bit better because I have experience um so we yeah we went to a number of clinics then um seeking different opinions and the majority overwhelming majority did suggest donor eggs um and we joined a donor egg waiting list and we were offered probably five egg donors I remember you talking to me when you were being offered donors and uh you really struggled to make that decision didn't you yeah and I I'm not sure what that maybe again this is a little bit my I I'm not very good at, at dealing with just the surface of things I've delved very deeply into things and Mm-hmm. getting very basic information about somebody just gave me more questions more often than not and um, so around about this time um my sister-in-law or, and my brother he was there uh, my sister-in-law visited and she wondered how I would feel if she was our egg donor and um, which to be honest ticked every single box I knew her yeah I know her <laughs> she's um yeah you know emotionally I think able to cope with it and we'd had a number of conversations about yeah. it mostly fueled by gin <laughs> we, we did have a number of conversations and we both felt pretty comfortable with it and 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 I said that I would you know I'd like my children to be related to to my brother and her children and um, but obviously it was very important to me that she had this conversation with my brother and that he agreed to it. And if he didn't, then I would respect that. That's, you know, it's, it's a lot for people to get their head around. Um, so she had that conversation with my brother and he said, no, absolutely not. It was weird. <laughs> it is. 
you know. Yeah, and it's not for everyone, isn't it? It's a, it is an unusual situation. Yeah, it's very strange. So somebody not being able to get their head around that, I understand. I think for him, he has to think about his children, and and for them, is it too much to get their head around? And then at the time, they were also considering trying for another child, and and I thought, you know what, actually. If she donates eggs to us and then they can't conceive another child. Lots to think about. I'm going to feel dreadful the rest of my life. And it would alter their relationship with that child. So I then felt, you know, things happen for a reason. This isn't meant to be. Just move on. I hold no grudges. I still sometimes think it would have been really interesting to see, but... Those are passing, fleeting thoughts, to be honest, more than anything. And that then created this, no, I need to know this person. Um, I had a friend who said she would consider donating eggs. Mm. And I politely declined that because I think people think, oh, it's just a cell. You know, this throwaway, it's just a cell. And then I think she used those words. And I said, oh, on that basis, then this isn't the right thing for us as friends. Um, And I then in an online forum on a Facebook group, just put out this thing saying, does anyone know how to find a known egg donor? And I think I received about 15 messages privately from people saying, I'll be your egg donor. Wow. Gosh, like. That's amazing. And then I, I felt a little bit concerned that people would quite so willingly just donate eggs when when you haven't got many they're quite precious yeah and you think what's the motivation (laughs) so all these people with abundance with an abundance of eggs who can just give them away I I found it quite interesting and so I had some very interesting conversations with people and actually the first person to message me was our egg donor and and I'll refer to as that I won't use her name or give away any of her details but She's yeah, that's fine. A friend <laughs> now, um, yeah. She she messaged and said, "Oh, I'm I'm really sorry to read about your situation." She didn't actually immediately say, "I'll give you my eggs." She just said, "I'm so sorry to hear about your situation. It sounds really difficult." And we ended up just getting chatting, and um, and yeah, and from there she became our egg donor and lived unfortunately over three hundred miles away, but we figured we may be able to make that work. Yeah. And the rest is history. <laughs> it is. It is. There was a, you know, a, a decent delay with COVID and three cancelled cycles, but we got there. In the end. <laughs> and just talking about the, the actual process of it. So you found this known donor now and you're both on the same page and you've, you've built a relationship. How did you find the, the navigating clinics side of things? Because I remember at one point having someone offer their eggs to me and it was at the very early stages. I wasn't in the right mindset. And I remember phoning around some clinics and emailing clinics to say, look, this is a situation. I've got my own donor. How would it work? And they made it sound so complicated and it was really off-putting. And then I went back towards looking for another donor. So interesting to hear your experience. It is interesting. So actually, skipping back to my sister-in-law, when she offered, I actually contacted our most local clinic and um, who who don't do any UK egg donor treatment, they do it with a, a clinic abroad. Um, and I contacted them and they said basically no. 
under any circumstances. They told me that it was bad for the children conceived through donation to know who their donor was and that complete anonymity is in the best interest of, of us as parents and of a child um, so it doesn't hinder on our relationship and um, I've since emailed them some resources. Yes because that is a completely different narrative to what we're hearing from the donor conceived community around the fact that they they want to have the right to know who that person is. Again though it's a business that's the way they make money yeah. is in partnership with this clinic abroad you know they it's actually not that financially beneficial for them to do a known donor IVF treatment because they're not sourcing the donor so they're not using they're not charging you for that they're not charging you for their egg bank for the testing for any of that and um, so mm. we chose a clinic closer to our egg donor because she has a family and, and at the time she is quite an incredible human she was completing her degree wow three small children um so, yeah, we said, you know, it's quite a lot to expect you to travel 300 miles. And she said, no, 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 I'm happy to travel. She even offered to come halfway. And I said, no, absolutely not. And in hindsight, that was the right thing to do because COVID then happened. Um, yeah. So we went with a clinic most local to her and it was absolutely fine. Um, they they already knew her as she had donated anonymously once previously. Um Okay. And and actually, at our first appointment, they were like, well, we'll find you a donor. And I said, well, we know our donor. Um, she's already had her appointment. We were very sweet. And, uh, and, and they went, oh, good choice. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, and I think because they'd obviously had such a good, um, a good experience the first time she donated. Uh, and yeah, so it was relatively straightforward and they were very open minded. To the idea that we were using a known donor and I was surprised I think because we'd had such a, a negative reaction locally they were very open yeah. to it they were happy sharing information they were contacting me with um scan results and things but I mean she was sending me pictures before that's amazing so you went through the whole process together because I I remember when we went through it and I didn't really know anything else it, I felt very detached from that side of things and I really struggled with that having you know when you go through own egg IVF you literally you know everything don't you in, inside out at every stage and suddenly you're just waiting and in the dark really so I can imagine it's a very different experience it I is feel a bit more involved I would have really struggled with all of that not knowing and then mm. and that's partly me being self-aware and partly you know a lot of trauma probably but I don't think yeah. I could have done that and and I knew that the clinic was going to call me and I would still text her and be like, how's it gone? And it got to the point where she would text me before I could even, like, she hadn't even <laughs> left the clinic room and she'd send me a picture of the follicle wow. count and sizes and things like that. And and I, and I remember we triggered, obviously, on the same day at the same time, uh, ready for transfer. Um, and we were messaging each other. And, and I remember on the day of egg collection, I felt physically sick because I just thought oh it should be me like what if something goes wrong and that I found really I think an egg donor can be a bit of a commodity when it's anonymous yeah. sometimes you know I, I see what people write in these chats like 
our donor only gave us 10 eggs and things and you're like yeah surely that's, that's very true ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome come on these are human yeah. beings and and I, I just I remember thinking goodness what if something happens and and her three children then have a mum who's unwell or she can't start her job yeah. that she's due to start in a few weeks and and I just thought oh I don't know if I'm going to be able to cope with that guilt and and then when she sent me the number the uh, outcome yes. I was just horrified for two reasons one because I find it unfeasible that a human can create that many <laughs> eggs you know in, in one cycle she created more eggs than than I did in three and yeah and then that thing of I thought oh I really hope she's not unwell after this and yeah I didn't want her to become unwell I mean she didn't have ridiculous numbers we weren't up there in 20s but it seemed a lot to yeah. me at the time and and then you know you still got to wait for those I still got those day two uh, day three and day five phone calls the this is how many's fertilized and and she didn't get that which then I felt really wow yeah, to totally lose any insight in yeah. just, oh you've done your job now bye and yeah so we mm. obviously just kept in really close contact and she knew when none of our family did that we'd had a transfer and we met on the day of transfer very naughtily outside of we had a very distanced outdoor coffee and <laughs> said hello because you know it's the least oh, you can do. A... yes you yeah. can't travel 300 miles and just say thanks for the eggs yeah that is, I mean, it's such an incredible thing that she's done for you, and I can totally understand her, knowing her and yeah, absolutely, and knowing her family situation, having all of that kind of pressure. Yeah, it must have been quite a difficult thing to deal with. Let's talk about how you told your friends and family throughout this, because obviously it's a slightly different situation. Um, and have you been open with them the whole time? And obviously, you've been open with your brother because. You were talking about it beforehand. But yeah, how have those conversations gone? So we told all of our very close family that we were looking to use um, donor eggs to conceive. Um, mostly they were very receptive. Um, I think it got to the point, you know, when you've been trying for eight years, perhaps it gets a little bit boring. <laughs> and maybe people just want you to have a baby and they're like, for goodness sake, just do what you need to do and have a baby so that we can stop hearing about this. <laughs> <laughs> but largely people were very supportive. Um, I, some of my friends maybe had unhelpful comments. Um, I had one particularly close family member say, oh, but I want you to have your own baby, um, which, you know, stung at the time. And I, and I think it's just one of those throwaway comments that people don't yeah. engage before they say and that person was very remorseful and regretted saying it and, yeah. and very much acknowledged yeah. that actually as a family we are very aware that you can still be family and and, and it is your own baby <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah it is kind of one of those things where you can share genetics and still be not share genetics and still be a family and that is fine it's just making sure that everybody appreciates that because you don't then want to bring a child into the family when 
those are the lingering thoughts, I suppose. But yeah, so everyone was open to it. Um, most people could understand why my sister-in-law was offering, but I think most of my family thought it was weird. Yeah. So again, I think backed up that maybe it wasn't the right thing to do. Um, they were all extremely supportive of using a known donor. Um, but I think in their mind, it was going to be a, you'll donate your eggs and then that's it. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I suspect I perhaps didn't explain that expressly enough that this would be an ongoing relationship and, and, you know, we are friends now and her children are my son's half genetic siblings, half siblings. Yeah. So, you know, and I think they're, starting to understand that a little bit more now and and they ask after her which is huge progress yeah you know they'll say oh how's <laughs> yes you the name but <laughs> the donor doing I'm doing quotation marks because I can't use the name um you know and and ask how the family are and you know they're very interested in her life now and, and I think that's part of them understanding that that's how it's going to be that they are an extension of our family yeah. now yeah and it's a, it's a process for people to get their heads around these different situations isn't it really yeah I mean I've had nearly seven years of getting my head around this and I did a lot of that processing before I shared that with my family so they're you know they're a good four years behind on on that processing yeah and let's talk about I mean one of the big things that come up when we talk about donor eggs is the grieving the loss of your genetics Mm. how do you think you went through that process because I know for some people it isn't as big as of a transition as others but and it's individual isn't it yeah so I think my the grieving the loss of my own genetics probably for me was more around the miscarriages because I think because they'd existed um those babies existed I mean one they were both missed miscarriages and one of them was particularly late and then so I think I more had to grieve those losses. Um, I don't know if it was necessarily that I was grieving that there won't be a, another child with my genetics. It was more that those with my genetics never made it home alive. Um, and I, I think that was more what I had to deal with. I think maybe my husband struggled more with that, that he wouldn't have a baby where he could see my eyes or this or that and and I don't know perhaps perhaps because I'm not actually that enamored with my physical appearance I never really had that oh they're not going to look like me it was never that for me it was more that we'd had these miscarriages and that they never made it home and and really having to process that and and then yeah helping my husband get through that it doesn't actually matter to me if this child doesn't look like me because you know my donor might have been better looking <laughs> because we hadn't met our donor at that point you know we we might have ended up with a far more attractive person <laughs> and 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 actually it became so much less about appearance as I did my research and and it became more about finding a person who was of a similar wavelength, who held the same values around family, who held the same values of if a child 
was donor conceived and as they got older they felt that they needed to have a relationship with her would she be open to that which she is and I, and I needed to know that they would be welcomed and accepted I mean we've had conversations that you know one day he might call her mom and that's fine because she is it oh this is an emotional topic but not because it's an unhappy one he's so lucky yeah to have two people who care so much for him and I, I was actually going to ask you about that in terms of terminology and, and how you intend to refer to her because it's a slightly different situation when you know who she is and she's there, she's a part of your lives um, as opposed to someone who you haven't got that link with. Yeah, and we're always going to be open with him about who she is. Um, I saw yesterday um, a post from the Happy Together Children's book page yes. about DNA. And I'm actually going to buy one of the books that she posted about. Um, Me too. Because we're always <laughs> going to be very open about it. And her preference is that he, at the moment, calls her by her first name. Um, her children call him their brother from another mother. <laughs> I love that. So, you know, there is very much a... It is family, but she said she doesn't want to force some kind of cutesy endearing term onto him but we've talked about that if he gets older and he's like oh my bio mom my donor mom or you know if mm. he wants to pick another kind of that's fine like yeah I just I I find it really overwhelming how lucky we are that that's our situation because I see so much of the trauma being that donor conceived people are rejected by their genetic parents and yeah I think that's yeah. something that I feel lucky about and you know what he might grow up and think well I don't really care you know yeah they they are who they are we we chat to them we meet up with them we get photos we share all of these things and he might be like yeah they're they're them yeah this is our family but equally I have to accept that he might think well they're my family too and I want a really good relationship with them. And like her parents send him presents and things. And, you know, I want that to be a possibility for him. I, I don't ever want to have a situation where he thinks, well, you knew this person, you accepted her genetics to create me. And then you've just gone, bye, thanks. Yeah. And, and not not really supported this relationship continuing. Yeah. No, it's, and actually she's, probably one of my best friends now that's like, amazing and I speak to her more than I speak to some of my family members yeah um and I I feel lucky more than anything just to have that to have her and her support yeah and I think from my own experience and speaking to other people I think sometimes that this, the reason I wanted to share your story was because I think using a known donor can seem so unobtainable and scary as well because there's it's like the whole grief. I remember personally, I felt almost threatened by the thought that there was somebody else that was going to play another role as a genetic parent. And I was going to be the one that was raising them. But it was all of those worries that I think it, it does move people more towards the 
unknown donor side because they feel more comfortable with it. And when you can't see ahead of you and it's so unknown, it can be really difficult to go down that sort of route where you're having to think about how do we define these relationships? But this is why I love sharing these stories. I've spoken to a couple of people on Paths to Parenthood who have used a known donor. There's some really beautiful stories that have come out of it where they've redefined what family means. And it doesn't mean that by knowing the donor, you're any less of a mum to him. But also, I think seeing that, and I've, I've spoken before about how I, I regret that our girls don't have that option to find who their donor is. And obviously, we will support them and try DNA testing if they want to and all of those other things. But hearing those stories I think if I'd have been at the very beginning it would have made me think differently and maybe less scared about using a gnome donor and so yeah, yeah I think it's difficult though because you know I'm I'm saying for us we've got this perfect situation and it, it truly is I, like I say I'm a blubbering wreck when I talk about it because I just feel so lucky but I was there you know I was the person who'd had three cycles of IVF that failed who was then back into the pits of grief about having these miscarriages in the past and and I looked online you know I looked abroad I and and honestly hand on heart in those moments if if I wasn't the person that I am if I was the person if I was someone who had just been totally engulfed by my grief I think we'd have gone there and we'd have done it and we'd have had a child four or five years ago through egg donation abroad but it is that bit of me that's like you only find out their hair color and their eye color yeah and, and I just wouldn't I physically as a person I'm not I'm just a bit OCD perhaps and and I just couldn't get my head around that yeah. was all that I would get and, and I think then that kind of perpetuated this grief of previous losses and and then and then it made me kind of delve deeper and root a bit more and and it was the stalling the the time taken to find clinics and find a clinic that we were comfortable with and then to be sent all of these donors that again I was like what I only get a read yeah. than it is compared to abroad you know you get quite a significant amount of information and I was like and that's all you yeah. get I can't just choose one of these people and so I think if it hadn't had been for all of that time for all of this time of me being like no I need more I need more I then went into all of these donor conceived people Facebook yeah. groups and you know you know the yes. one the the donors the, the old don't conceive people, the recipient <laughs> parents. Oh, I was on there for hours. I was like middle of the night. I was probably on there six hours some nights, yeah. just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And and at the start, and I think we can all say those of us who've been on it, when I went on there, I was so triggered. Mm-hmm. Like, but I'll be his mom. I'll be their mom. It's my baby. It's you know there was. I think I even thought it's just a cell. And then, then I read it, you know, then I really delved into it and put, put my pain aside and allowed the person, the child to be the centre. And then that was when I was like, oh, you know, there's more, there's, there is more we can do, but clinics aren't making money out of it. So they, they don't want you to know that. 
they don't they don't want my story or you know these aren't the stories they want sharing they want the people who go buy some eggs you know end up spending an absolute fortune on donor egg IVF because let's face it, it is it is more expensive yeah. than than standard IVF um and and that's yeah. it's a money making wheel for them there's no money to yeah. be made if we're all friends and getting on and you know making families that way and I think we are so vulnerable at those points as well and I think that's the difficulty because yeah I think when when you're first delving into this and when we went through it there weren't the Facebook groups there was nothing being talked about on Instagram and you very much felt alone um but to dip your toe into this and hear someone talking about their biological mother or genetic mother and you suddenly think oh my goodness that means that I'm not going to be a real mother and I'm not going to be that person for them or one day I might be replaced and for me it's just over time where I've become more comfortable in that role and and I've listened to people and I understand that actually it doesn't have to be one or the other it's but it's that whole process of acceptance it it and it is a process I always highlight that word process because you don't come to it overnight and like for you it was a process over years um for me mine's mine's happened post having them I think because I was so quick into going down that route that I'd not really processed it all and and so that's why I think these conversations for people listening are so helpful because it just maybe sparks those things that they may not have originally thought of and they can see different things and I think it's worth pointing out as well that I think you've said everyone is different and so for some people I mean, I myself definitely at the time and the place I was in, I found comfort in not knowing as much because I then could almost distance myself from that fact. And I, I, I thought, oh, well, what would it be like if I'd seen a picture of her and then I'd just be seeing that in my children and not see them as themselves? And now I wish I knew a lot more. So, And that's it. And I think when you're in the depths of your trauma and your grief around having to use a donor, that is exploited it's very much exploited um you know there aren't many clinics that require you to have counseling before you have um IVF with any kind of donor gamete and actually for all in the UK you need it it's not particularly in depth with most clinics you know it's not it doesn't resolve a lot of that trauma and and in fact I think some some places it perhaps feeds into that a little bit and and creates a bit of a fantasy out of having some anonymity like oh well you know you've got until they're 18 (laughs) in the UK and it's not going to change anything and I will say you know I absolutely I have a lot of friends now who've who've used donor eggs and absolutely respect everybody's choices and understand them because I very nearly made you know different choices myself as I say I had the gift of time to to end up going the route that we went um but I do think a lot of it is exploitation of people who are extremely vulnerable um and not really getting the support that you need yeah and I I, it still blows my mind how little support there is out there and I almost feel that I mean you think about someone who goes down the adoption path in the UK there's so many hoops they have to go through and so much they have to learn and and think about and really consider and then you have donor conception which is almost just seen as an extension of IVF 
and I'm not saying it's the same as adoption, but it's definitely there are definitely parallels and there needs to be so much more support for people from the outset to help them make these choices and help them think further ahead because that's the other thing as well I don't think people often even after so much grief and trauma when you've had losses you almost won't let yourself imagine having a child because it can hurt so much and you think well if I think about that and it doesn't happen then I'm gonna be devastated again and so let's just focus on the next step getting pregnant let's focus on the next step getting to the first milestone and through there and then suddenly these people have got the baby and they think wow now what do I do (laughs) and yet there's no further support so you've had your one mandatory counseling session which for me I never actually got because we ended up going abroad before we got to that stage with our clinic because you you had to get be matched before you had a counseling session so (laughs) it didn't make any sense so I just really feel, and that's why I started Paths to Parenthood, not to be a replacement for counselling, but for a, to be a space for these things to be explored and for us to become more comfortable with the concept, but what that means for us and what that means for our children as well. Yeah, and it's absolutely what what is needed. You know, like you say, it, it's not the same as adoption, but there are so many parallels. And, and yet with adoption, if you've been through IVF, you have to kind of, prove that you know you're you've dealt with a degree of trauma and and that actually you're mentally in the in the right mind frame where yeah I mean we we had quite good counseling because our 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 implications counseling wasn't through our clinic we we'd had some separate support just partly for me which started out as being you know some some trauma counseling around about miscarriages which kind of transformed then into some implications counselling it was a trained fertility counsellor and uh, and then she said well since we're doing these why don't you just bring your husband and we did I think we ended up doing maybe three implications counselling sessions um largely to help Gareth with the concept of using a known donor um and and even then I I'm not a hundred percent sold that that was enough you know, and, and certainly I think, like you say, I think a lot, a lot of the emotional difficulties potentially come during pregnancy and post-pregnancy as well, because that's when the, the who do they look like and it becomes all those, real, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, all of those questions that you you think, oh, I'll be able to deal with that become a reality. And actually, they're, they're quite difficult to deal with, particularly when you're really hormonal. Yes. Tell us about your pregnancy. How did you deal with those? So what what cropped up for you? Um, So pregnancy, didn't really believe it was happening. Um, Just to make life interesting, I had an absolutely enormous bleed. I think I was about six weeks pregnant. Um, And it was one of those really. Yeah, I had one of those moments as well. It was, yeah, terrifying. It was like something from a Mm. horror movie. Oh. It was in a cubicle at work, spattered oh, up wow. walls. And yeah, it was so I was like, right, well, that's it. We're done. We're done. And I'm, I'm walking back to my office, all composed. I'd wiped the walls down, you know, because I have to keep it clean. It was a hospital. And then I walked back to my office really composed. And I thought, right, I'm just going to ring my boss and say, I need to ring the GP and probably need to arrange some bloods or something because they'll not scan me. It's too early. So I walked through all these patients on the ward and so oh, hi 
how are you doing? And then got to my office and rang my boss and was like, oh, I think I need to go. Um, I haven't shared with you, but I'm actually pregnant. And then I just erupted into tears. And she knew, obviously, everything that we'd been through. And she went, just go. Don't You don't need to tell me. Just go. So I yeah, I went to the GP. Um, we had bloods done that day. Uh, he was very good. I, I will give my GP credit in the midst of COVID. They were very responsive. And then... Um, and then went back two days later and my HCG had not doubled. So was then more convinced this isn't a viable pregnancy. This is going to be terrible. And um, so I rang my clinic, which was obviously 330 odd miles away. And they then rang um, the local hospital and they agreed that they would do a scan. And that by this point, I think I must have been... So they made me wait. So I think I was just over seven weeks when they made when we went. Um, Gareth had to wait outside because of COVID. Yeah. And then I, I don't honestly remember anything that happened in the room. I think I totally blanked out. Uh, and the next thing I knew, Gareth was there. So I'm assuming that I, and I still to this day don't remember. I don't remember what I said. But anyway, they brought Gareth in and they scanned me and they were like, oh, we can see a heartbeat. So I think we had scans more than we should have. Uh, that's all I'll say. I'm not going to advocate that people should be going for lots of private scans, but we did. And um, yeah, and, and also it was COVID. So most scans, they weren't letting partners in. And, you know, we hadn't been allowed to any of my other appointments at all so we were just having extra scans that he could come into because private clinics were letting him and uh yeah so then yeah it felt like it was dragging then you get to 30 weeks and yes you don't know where the time's gone and uh I had all of I had everything gestational <laughs> diabetes just to top off the journey um, yeah. and it was it was wild yeah so it was I think to be honest I used to just wake up most days and be like Oh, that's yeah. that's still there. <laughs> like feeling yeah. this bump and this kick, and and I think I maybe did feel a little bit detached yeah. from it a lot of the time because I still didn't quite believe that we were gonna come home with the baby, and um, and then my waters broke prematurely. He came along, fortunately because I had gestational diabetes. He was a giant. Yeah. <laughs> We never had a really, really tiny baby. He was, I think, seven pound three born, um, and he was over a month early. Wow, so, yeah. <laughs> that's a good job he I came mean, at that point. <laughs> yeah, I'd have had a toddler, I think, otherwise. <laughs> yeah, it was undiagnosed gestational diabetes. It was di diagnosed really late, so he was just huge. Um, but yeah, so pregnancy, it, w it was odd. Yes, and and I yeah. think I did have a little bit of imposter syndrome, like people would see you pregnant and go oh wow how far how, how along are you and I would a bit embarrassed actually like when people would ask me questions I would feel a bit awkward about it um but yeah and how open would you be with I mean obviously it depends how well you know people doesn't it yeah so I I got quite good at gauging I think I I've then since created this scale of people who I will share with if I have any belief that people are going to be part of our lives then I share 
if they are people who maybe I don't feel have that much of an interest in a friendship or, you know, long-term relationship, then I don't tend to share as much. Oh, I'm going to sound really weird now. I think sometimes perhaps I do share to make people feel a bit uncomfortable. Yeah, well, it's... Because you get people asking really invasive questions like, oh, you're a bit old to be a mum. Haven't you been married for a long time? This has taken a long time. And and so I would then say, well, actually, we've had like seven years of fertility treatment. I've had multiple miscarriages and we've had to use a donor to conceive just because I yeah. think, you know, if it'll shut you off. Stop them saying it to somebody else. So, yes, good on you. <laughs> I, I tend to gauge it. Some Most people I will share, you know, um, but some people I think it adds no value to you and it adds no value to me. Apart from that, it might make me feel a bit sad. Um, unless people are going to be in Matt's life, then I don't really want them to have that information about him. It's his. Yeah. And you mentioned that it can still make you feel a bit sad. And I think those sort of feelings are important to talk about as well, because it's people may listen and think, oh, well, she's fine about it now and everything's all fine and she's really happy and what I always try and share with my experience is that you these feelings can coexist and you can still feel that grief and wish for a simpler story and all of those things but be absolutely delighted and not want to change your situation one bit so just talk to me a little bit about those mixture of feelings. So yeah I mean I it's quite conflicting because like the last uh, miscarriage awareness week don't even know if that's a baby loss awareness week that's what it's called I really struggled with because it created all of this conflict in me that I've now got this little person that I can't imagine ever loving anybody in the world more than but then I equally felt sad about those other babies and and if they'd lived we wouldn't have them but you know with them they've not been able so it was really hard and really conflicting and and I think probably that's one of the things I still struggle with the most like it's that wondering and it's awful even you know even as recipient parents we still do it like oh who do they look like and you can't help but wonder like I say I'm not overly vain about my own appearance and wanting a child to look like me but it's that curiosity of what would they have looked like and it is and I, I don't think it necessarily is about being vain I think it's about that it's it's what's yeah. always expected and what society kind of yeah, builds yeah, these narratives around and and you yeah you just imagine that you will have like a mini version of you in some way at some point and then so I think it's perfectly natural to still have those feelings and... yeah but I mean I look at him and he's what he's not even eight months old yet and I think he already is a little mini version of me <laughs> he might not particularly <laughs> look like me but God, like he's so inquisitive and like I've yeah you know, like you are <laughs> yeah he will not leave things alone and he has to investigate everything to the nth degree and if he gets something that can come apart it will come apart you know he's not He's so inquisitive. So, I, you know, he is a mini me. He doesn't need to to look like me for that. Um, and I, I think we're fortunate in that he is, at the minute, this really happy, 
happy-go-lucky, apart from, you know, apart from the obvious teething, he's this really happy-go-lucky, inquisitive little boy. Um, but then I think, had we had that, that could have created a lot of, you know, discord in our family if if I couldn't give him information quite re- readily. We look at pictures at least once a week, sometimes every day, of of our donor and her family and you know, I point out the pictures and who well, like he he looks um, he looks largely like my husband, but has a strong similarity to one of my donor's children in particular. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask about resemblances, yeah. and and have you had any comments around that? Obviously, the family it's knowing constant, that... isn't it? It's constant. Yes. Um, in the most part, it's oh. He's his father's son, and and that's fairly easy to deal with, isn't it? And I find probably the most triggering thing when people tell me he looks like me. Yes, yeah, I can relate to that. You almost feel a bit of a fraud, and you're a bit like, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um. So yeah, I find that really difficult, to, and I tend to just deflect it and say, oh, he's his father's son, or no, he's his dad's image. Um. I had uh, I met with somebody from work who also had a a little one recently and we went for lunch and she said I actually do think he looks like you which is a bit worrying actually because then does that mean that I look like my husband <laughs> it's a bit like dogs like you pick someone who looks like you <laughs> anyway so and I said oh well I I disagree politely it's kind of you but I, I really disagree I said actually he looks like my husband but he has our donor's daughter's nose very much it's gorgeous and um and she went oh really and I I said oh and I never do this and I don't know what compelled me to do it I showed her a picture yeah and she went oh he does have her nose that's unfortunate and I just thought that's my child like that's his face and it is gorgeous and I love that nose it's actually my favorite thing about him is that little nose because I love that little girl um and you've just used the word unfortunate about my child's appearance and I know she was obviously it was a throwaway flippant in her mind it is unfortunate that there is any resemblance to a donor you know another genetic link because other people can't get their head around that and they see it as tree. a negative thing. Yeah. Than, and yeah. actually, it's an extension of our family, and, and we are as a family fine with that. So I get that for her, it would be unfortunate. But yeah, people just don't engage their brains before they say yeah. things at times. And yeah, I, I really struggled, and that word really resonated yeah. with me and upset me. Uh, and I said nothing to her, which again, is not like me. <laughs> Well, you were probably so shocked at the time. I was just, I think, shocked and deeply hurt. uh, And I just thought, oh, I'm I'm not even going to respond to that because how do you respond? Yeah, it's a difficult one. Um, But yeah, and these, I think it's important to say for anyone at the very beginning, I think these sort of comments don't come up all the time, but they do hit when when they do come. Yeah. Yeah. In the early days, and I, and I think I was always quite well prepared for that. And then I did do the whole, he looks like his dad. He looks yeah. like his dad. I like and, the phrase, they and, look like themselves, because that just completely deflects it from anything. 
yeah I've also said that quite I have said that a lot actually um and yeah because I think family found that quite difficult as well um especially like my in-laws would be like oh he's got my this or he's got my that and I and I think there's probably a bit of awkwardness around that because it kind of excludes me somewhat in-law would be like oh he's got your nose trying to include me and make me feel better and I would say well actually no that's definitely our donor's nose (laughs) and and you know trying to normalize those conversations rather than accept them because I think what I don't want for M is for him to then be around people trying to make me feel better because I don't need to feel better we need him to feel okay around these conversations that include all of our family that includes our donor's family and and actually know that we're all comfortable with who he is and and the fact that you know we have used a donor and and it's not something to be ashamed of and it's just going to be normal for him it's not secrets and gossip I suppose we've been talking for ages and I knew we would there's so much more we could chat about but let's just bring it to a point where I'm asking everyone to do this just to share your three pieces of advice for anyone who is on this path to parenthood so I think I think that's really difficult because I think for everybody it's going to be completely different um I suppose my first bit of advice would be counselling if you can access it if you can't access specialist fertility advice please try through the NHS and it is worth seeing what you can get through your GP even if it's for trauma you know they can it may not be fertility specific counselling but they may be able to help you just process some trauma so that would be number one and number two would be find your tribe you know, for me, it was very much on Instagram speaking to you, you know, the whole everything that you've done with Path to Parenthood's just been an amazing resource. And I know isn't still is an amazing resource for parents once you've conceived. So, you know, find your tribe, find your friends, find resources that help you online. And um, de- so definitely number two would be that. And number three, I would say always give yourself some breathing space and um, and then I still say it to myself now, never make a decision on a bad day. Like, if you think you've come to a decision, give yourself some breathing space to make sure it's right for you. Yeah. And I think quite often we feel so rushed on this journey because we just want to get yeah. there. And I was definitely guilty of that. I was so impatient. When you've been trying one, two, three, I mean, 15 years, you know, when you get to that point, you're like, right, I'm ready. I need this now. Um and yeah, I, I felt like that and somehow managed to drag this out another three years. But you are where you are now and you needed to go through exactly. all of those things. And, and, and that was what was right for you. Yeah, don't, I don't regret taking that time. And I, I, I will say that I don't regret taking that time. At the time, I was incredibly frustrated. And I think you can scroll <laughs> through my Instagram feed to see I was a really sad grief-ridden human being but I think I also needed that so if you want to find Jen she's on sea magic everywhere everywhere Everywhere. yeah yes um and yeah just thank you so much for sharing that with us I just want to finish with one point just just tell us a little bit about your relationship with Em now and kind of the bond that you share because I always think that's a nice thing to hear about yeah I mean it's crazy so he's 
nearly upstairs and I already miss him oh. I'm not really sure how I'm going to get back to work um yeah it's literally I feel like I found my soulmate it's amazing yeah and I feel like that about the girls as well you can't imagine having anyone else can you it's just and this is it like I wouldn't want anyone else now no no let's leave it there special. before we we have tears yeah. I cry again <laughs> But no, it is it's such an emotional topic. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. It's been amazing to speak with you. And I'm sure what you've shared will help so many people and just prompt those different things to think about that you may not ordinarily have thought about as well. Thank you, Jen. Welcome back, Julianne. Today, I wanted to pick up on something um, that came out through my conversation with Jen and I remember she talked about a particular comment she received from someone when she was telling them about the fact that she was needing to use an egg donor and that person said oh but I want you to have your own baby and Jen really picked up on how that that upset her and and I think it it really links back to a fear that I hear often a fear that I had myself about not feeling like the real parent um, or the legitimate parent because we don't share genetics and our family is built in a different way so I know we've talked about this in Paths to Parenthood before in in terms of our parenting identity but how Mm -hmm. might we overcome these feelings of legitimacy as a parent and and understand this a little bit more? They're such powerful words aren't they you know an own child our own child yeah and maybe that's where it starts. And look, this is why I find working in this area so fascinating and, and so rewarding, because it speaks to so many of the assumptions that we have as parents. You know, what makes a child our own? You know, is, is it genetics? Is it biology? Or is it actually bonding? You know, is it a sense that we have given birth to this child? Or is it, in fact, the relationship that we build with this child and you know we know from almost 30 years of research now that the relationship is key you know one can give birth to one's own child to use those words you know genetically um and still not feel that they're ours that they're our child and if anything I think what I want to speak a little bit about here is a phenomenon that we talk about in parent-infant psychotherapy called claiming the baby and it's this process that we go through as parents and hopefully it'll speak to what Jen is is um, hinting at here which is when do we start to form a relationship with our babies when is it that we recognize ourselves as their parent when is it that they recognize us as their parent when is it that we are recognized as our child's parent and of course If you take the mainstream journey, this is a process that might begin with, you know, imagining our child in our minds. I often talk about gestating our babies in our minds to begin with, and then we might fall pregnant. And then at some point in the pregnancy, we might start to think of a baby's name. We might start to speak to our bump. Um, But for many, even where there is no genetic loss, that isn't necessarily the journey either that you know that this journey has different phases for some for example pregnant after loss or pregnant after multiple attempts uh, to become pregnant 
it might only be when the baby is in your arms that you start the complex journey of bonding and, and feeling that this child is your own. But actually, more often or not, and this is speaking as somebody who's worked in the field of perinatal psychology for over 20 years, there will be a moment at some point, it could be during the pregnancy scan or it could be postpartum, where our babies look at us and there is that moment of recognition. It might be during breastfeeding or it might be when you've been ooing and aahing at each other. There's that moment of recognition in your baby's eyes that, ah, I see you. Yes. You're you're somebody important. You're my mom. And that we see them. Now, I'm deliberately describing this in, in emotive language because it is very emotive. Yeah. But the journey to that moment when we come to our children via donor conception or surrogacy or adoption is obviously covered in in so many complex parts of the journey, be they legal, emotional, physical, medical. And what I want to sort of bring it back to is that moment of being seen as a parent is multiple, it's manifold, and it consists of these moment-to-moment events in the relationship between us and our child, or between us and our partner, or between somebody seeing us. So for example, often I will have parents say to me, it was that moment where I got on the plane, I had her in a sling, she started to cry and I was able to soothe her. And this old lady beside me looked and said, oh, she's lovely, isn't she? And that was the moment I claimed my baby. That was the moment that I was finally seen as my baby's legitimate parent. So I think what I want to impress upon anybody listening is that this is a complex process. It's a complex process, even without taking into consideration some of the things that Jen spoke about. And often the making our children our own and feeling legitimate as our child's parent is a process of moment to moment events that happen over a period of time. The ways in which perhaps that we can, you know, augment or help that relationship if indeed we're coming to um, parenthood via any of the routes that I've described, is to understand that we have to give ourselves time, that this is a process. It's not necessarily something that's going to happen immediately after birth. And of course, that's one of the myths, isn't it, of, of parenthood, that we will finally meet our babies and fall in love. Um, that moment of meeting. But I guess what I'm saying across the career that I've had is that more often than not, the parent-infant relationship happens as a series of meetings from, you know, perhaps in a donor-conceived context, um, picking out the donor, um, finally seeing um, the embryo on a scan, perhaps a transfer, perhaps the moment where we see the baby on a scan, all the way through, including birth and those postpartum moments that I've talked about in terms of breastfeeding or massage or indeed introducing our baby to our wider familial context. All of these things make up belonging and relatedness in terms of being a donor-conceived parent. Thank you so much, Julianne. And yes, I can confirm from my own experience that it is all of these things that makes us a parent. And I think I particularly resonated with the point you made around that moment that your baby really sees you. 
and you see yourself in their eyes um and I think that's such a powerful way of describing it and definitely something that I resonate with from my own experience um, so I hope everyone found that insightful and um, if you did want to hear more from Julianne um, you can find Julianne at Parenthood in Mind on Instagram, but you'll also find lots more from Julianne over on Paths to Parent Hub, which is my membership support platform, and that is designed to offer you support, connection, and real insights into this journey, whether you're right at the very beginning making the decision, whether you're going through treatment, whether you're now pregnant after donor conception, or whether you are now parenting. It's there to support you, to guide you, to help you feel less alone. And Julianne features as one of my key speakers, um, and she talks in depth in particular about this topic when we talk about our parenting identity and also the attachment and bonding process. And my hope is that with this resource, it can help you understand these fears better and better prepare yourself um, for parenting as a donor-conceived parent. And this resource has been going for some two years now, which I can't actually believe. I've just celebrated two year anniversary of Paths to Parent Hub, and there is so much on there now. And I'm just in the process of launching a new resource, which is entitled Our Common Fears, which will allow you in your own time to work through these fears, to understand them, to listen to professionals, to listen to researchers as we talk about these fears, and also listen to those lived experiences too. So do come and join us there. You can find out more details at www.pathstoparenthub.com and that's where you can join as a member and I would absolutely love to welcome you to the community there. also want to say a huge thank you to Jen for sharing her story and for being so patient with me as I get this final episode out. This is the last episode of this series and I'd love to hear from you as to how useful you found it. I would absolutely love to come back and do another series. If you can please do rate and share um, as much as possible. And if you can leave a review if you found it helpful, I would really appreciate that too. And if I am to do a future series, if you would ever consider sharing your story, whether it be through the podcast or whether it be through Paths to Parent Hub, please do let me know. You can find me at Defining Mum and I'm always open to receiving messages there. Sometimes it takes me a little bit of time to come back to you, but I always try to come back to anyone who messages me. So I hope you're all well. hope you found it useful, and I hope to be back soon. Take care.